RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Ali Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 8. You've got Jack the Ripper at last. The Contemporary Suspects. Last week, I looked at the men whom the police suspected of being Jack the Ripper, and who were responsible for the Whitechapel murders of 1888. Though those police officials have long since passed away, and much of their documentary evidence lost, stolen or destroyed, the case itself still bursts brightly in the public eye, and now, nearly 130 years later, fresh nominations, theories and evidence are still coming to light. The field of Ripperology has built up a suspect list of over 150 men, and one woman. Jill the Ripper, favoured by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle no less. This week I'll look at the main contemporary theories. The first accused is a more of a crossover between a modern suggestion and a Victorian police suspect, as his candidacy emerged nearly 15 years after the murders, but came with the added authenticity of Inspector Frederick Abeline's approval, and the views of the highest-ranked policeman on the ground during those times must always be considered. On the 20th of March 1903, Severin Klozowski, a 37-year-old man from Nagorno, Poland, was convicted of the murder of Maud Marsh in Borough, South London. She was his third wife, and he had killed her by administering tartar emetic, a poison which, when taken in sufficient amounts, causes death with symptoms not too dissimilar to arsenical poisoning. Klozowski had also killed two of his other wives using the same process, though he was only convicted of Maud's death. The jury took just 11 minutes to return the verdict, and the Borough Poisoner was hanged in Wandsworth Prison on the 7th of April, 1903. Come the time of his death, Klozowski had for many years gone under the name of George Chapman. No relation to Annie Chapman, the Ripper's second victim, though there is a bigger coincidence to come there. He'd arrived in the East End sometime before November 1887. The actual time is not known, though there is a record that he had a passport which allowed him to travel between the two countries, and which expired that month. Seven years before his arrival, he had trained as a surgeon in Warsaw, but his profession in the East End was that of a hairdresser, or hairdresser's assistant, firstly with an Abraham Radin of 70 West India Dock Road, and then on his own at 126 Cable Street, where he was likely to have lived during the murders. Though Cable Street is close to the murders, Indeed, only a five-minute walk from Berner Street. It is particularly interesting that his next location was in the basement of the White Hart pub on the corner of Whitechapel High Street and what was once George Yard, now Gunthorpe Street, where Martha Tabram was killed. The pub is still there today and has a sign outside to mark his time there. Gunthorpe Street is probably the most atmospheric Victorian street remaining in the area today and appears completely incongruent with its modern surroundings. I recently took a friend for a walk around the area We headed east along Whitechapel High Street and then turned into the archway into Gunthorpe Street. She was visibly shocked as to the difference between London in 2017 and this new Victorian era she'd entered. It's certainly worth a visit should you ever find yourself near Oldgate East Tube Station. 
Let's get back to Severin. In 1889, the year following the murders, he met and married Lucy Budowski, whom he met at the Polish club in Clerkenwell. They'd known each other for just five weeks, but swift weddings were not unusual at the time. Marry in haste, repent in leisure, the old adage says, and this was certainly true for Lucy. There were many things she didn't know about her new husband, including his foul temper and his fondness of walking around the streets alone at night. But nothing surprised her more than the day a woman turned up proclaiming to be none other than the Polish-born wife of her husband. As surreal as it seems, the three people cohabited for a while, but the real Mrs. Klosowski soon gave up the ghost and moved out, once she realised that Lucy was pregnant. Sadly, the child died of pneumonia in March 1891. It's not known if this was a contributing factor, but the couple decided to move to Jersey City, New Jersey. It was around this time that the marriage fell apart. Klosowski was a violent bully and would often beat Lucy. On one occasion he held her down on the bed and prevented her from screaming by pressing his face against her mouth. He was interrupted from going any further when a customer arrived, but Lucy noticed that he'd hidden something under the pillow. It was a long-bladed knife. She fled to London, and though Klosowski followed her, they soon parted for good. She would prove to be his luckiest wife. 1893 found Chapman at a barber's shop in South Tottenham, where he met with a woman called, yes, Annie Chapman. Not our Annie, of course, but another. They stayed together for a while until Klosowski brought another woman home one night and informed her that she was to live with them. Though pregnant, Annie took the hint and left. Klosowski had no interest whatsoever in the child. It was around this time that Severin Klosowski decided to anglicise his name and became George Chapman. Not only did the new moniker lessen the strain of hearing people mispronounce his real name, but it also freed him from his complicated past. He could now start anew, or at least continue with no previous misdemeanours to malign him. He next moved to Leytonstone, where he took up with an alcoholic called Mary Spink. They married in a farcical ceremony and moved to Hastings, where, for a while, they operated a successful hairdresser's shop. While George cut hair, Mary would play piano in what became known in the area as musical shaves. Of course, giving his violent ways, it wouldn't last long, and people began to notice bruises and scrapes on Mary, as well as hear her shouts from their residence upstairs. However, things were about to become much worse for the latest Mrs Chapman. On the 3rd of April 1897, George entered the chemist in the High Street Hastings and purchased an ounce of tartar emetic from the proprietor, William Davidson. Chapman knew his poisons and added tiny amounts to Mary's meals and medicines. This resulted in a long, painful illness for Mary and she passed away on Christmas Day, 1897. Cause of death was given as consumption and the widower appeared to be absolutely devastated. Mary's nurse described the scene. He stood at her bedside looked down at her body and said, Polly, Polly, speak. Then he went into the next room and cried. After that, he went downstairs and opened the pub. Chapman had momentarily gave up hairdressing and began running a pub, hiring a former restaurant manager called Bessie Taylor to look after the customers. She too married Chapman, and before too long, she began to suffer stomach cramps. She died on Valentine's Day, 1901. There's a revealing anecdote about Chapman's conduct around this time. Bessie's friend, Elizabeth Painter, would visit them and ask how Bessie was, only to be told that she was dead. Unsurprisingly, Elizabeth collapsed in tears and rushed upstairs to see the patient, only to find her alive in bed. Later, Chapman told Painter that she was much about the same, 
but she'd actually died the day before. He was utterly cold and cruel. While working in the Monument Tavern, Borough, in 1901, he met Maud Marsh. Again, the same path was followed. Another marriage, more stomach pains, and a dying wife. But on this occasion, the victim's mother grew suspicious, and asked for another doctor to come in. Chapman had been carefully giving Maud the tiniest measures, but concerned that she might survive, issued heavier doses to speed up the process. Maud died on the 22nd of October 1902, but this time a full autopsy was carried out. Arsenic was found in the body, and the accompanying metallic element, antimony, a byproduct of arsenical poisoning, which revealed this to be a murder. Antimony has the curious side effect of preserving corpses, so Mary and Bessie's body were exhumed to see if they too were murdered. Both looked remarkably fresh for the amount of time they'd been in the grave. The game was up. It was widely reported that upon hearing of the arrest, Inspector Aberline had congratulated Godley with the words, You've got Jack the Ripper at last. Aberline explained this remark to the Pall Mall Gazette. I have been so struck with remarkable coincidences in the two series of murders that I have not been able to think of anything else for several days past. Not, in fact, since the Attorney General made his opening statement at the recent trial and traced the antecedents of Chami before he came to this country in 1888. Since then the idea has taken full possession of me and everything fits in and dovetails so well that I cannot help feeling that this is a man we struggled so hard to capture 15 years ago. As I say, there are a score of things which make one believe Chapman is the man, and you must understand that we have never believed all those stories about Jack the Ripper being dead, or that he was a lunatic, or anything of that kind. For instance, the date of arrival in England coincides with the beginning of a series of murders in Whitechapel. There is a coincidence also in the fact that the murders ceased in London when Chapman went to America, while similar murders began to be perpetrated in America after he landed there. The fact that he studied medicine and surgery in Russia before he came over here is well established, and it is curious to note that the first series of murders were the work of an expert surgeon, while the recent poisoning cases proved to be done by a man with more than an elementary knowledge of medicine. The story told by Chapman's wife of the attempt to murder her with a long knife while in America is not to be ignored. It's worth noting that Abilene too appeared ignorant of Anderson and Swanson's witness and suspect at the police seaside home though, as discussed earlier, he wasn't exactly alone there. It's certainly interesting that Klodowski ticks many boxes for the Whitechapel murders. He left for America not long after the Kelly murder, he lived locally, had a pathological hatred of women, looked not unlike the Astrakhan man that George Hutchison spoke of, again with a large Hutchison caveat, had some medical knowledge enough to poison his wife and disguise from trained doctors, and was dispassionate enough to kill and go on killing. However, Abilene was also wise enough to acknowledge that there were many things against why she should be the Ripper. Firstly, Chapman was possibly the youngest of all the suspects. Most witnesses have the killer as between 25 and 35, but Chapman was 23 in 1888. Mrs Long said that Annie Chapman's killer was in his 40s, and it's unlikely that even the haziest of lights could add 20 plus years. Then there's his availability. Mrs. Raiden, Abraham's wife, and landlady of Chapman's first residence in West India Dock Road, threw a party for him in order that he might meet other Poles. The date was the 7th of August 1888, the night Martha Tabram was killed in George's yard. Would he likely leave the party in West India Dock Road Limehouse to kill someone in Whitechapel? Not impossible, of course, but it would necessitate a long walk when there were plenty of other prostitutes in the area. 
Of course, the major barrier to confirming him as a valid suspect is his modus operandi. The Ripper throttles his victims before cutting their throats, and then eviscerating them. Chapman seems to be more of a sadistic killer, inasmuch as he watched them suffer daily. The Ripper seemingly had little interest in their pain, and simply enjoyed slicing them up and harvesting their organs. Is it likely that he would slaughter Mary Kelly so viciously, and then move to a much slower and less bloody method such as poisoning? Again, it's not impossible, but when we consider that the Ripper's murders escalated in their violence throughout the campaign, would he then just give up on that entirely and change tack? Then there's his time in America. Abilene speaks of his disappearing to America not long after the Kelly murder, but he didn't actually arrive in New Jersey until 1891, over two years after the Miller's Court murder. Would such a man have time off, or get bored? True, he was newly married in 1889, but Severin, as he was then, doesn't seem the most attentive of husband by any definition. Even if he wasn't the Ripper, it's curious that there's a second multiple murderer on the streets of Whitechapel during the Autumn of Terror. He just hadn't started at that time, or had he? He's certainly a valid suspect, but I'll leave you to consider his candidacy. The next candidate, or group of candidates, is a little difficult to discuss. In preparing these articles, I took certain decisions about their content and direction. As I said earlier, I elected not to show the autopsy pictures of the victims, as they're A. revolting, B. intrusive, and C. I'd like that judgement to be yours, not mine. I've since discovered, actually, that I'm not alone in this, and other Ripper writers have adopted the same policy. I've also decided not to aggressively propose or denigrate any suspect theories. It's not always possible, but I like to think that I've presented their candidature, while offering arguments both for and against their legitimacy, without colouring them with my own views. For example, George Chapman's is a compelling case, but there is much against him being the Whitechapel fiend. That's up to you, I've just tried to be fair. However, the next suspect is so ridiculous that it's almost impossible for me not to pour scorn from a great height. So here, I'll try to keep the weariness out of my voice as I relate the notion that Prince Albert Victor Christian Edward, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, and grandsons of the reigning monarch Queen Victoria, was Jack the Ripper. I'll say straight away that my views are not born from any patriotic protection of the monarchy or any such guff. If anything, the Queen's grandson being the most famous serial killer in the world would be staggering, and I'd speak of little else if it were true. No, my enmity is purely down to the popularity of the royal conspiracy, and while it is known to some level by most people, it is also arguably the most erroneous, right up there with the Ripper being an escaped gorilla, or giant eagle. The most recent TV and film adaptations of the murders have put the royal family at the heart of the case. Firstly, in the Centenary TV show, starring Michael Caine, and then the 2002 Johnny Depp film, From Hell. Both are highly enjoyable, of course, and I have copies of both, but they're strictly fiction, with only the slightest nod to the truth. This may break the hearts of those who love those films, but Abilene was neither an alcoholic, in Kane's case, nor was he an absinthe-swilling dandy who saw the murders in his adult dreams and was romantically linked to Mary Kelly, Johnny Depp. Yet, if you were to ask anyone who the Ripper was, there's more of a fair chance that royalty will be mentioned. I say this because I too believe that there's a link with someone noble somewhere. That was a long time ago, though. The evidence doesn't fit. The story is one of an example of how a rumour grows, flourishes, and then somewhere becomes an accepted possibility, in an Emperor's New Clothes scenario. 
Although there's been a rumour of Albert Victor being involved in the murders for years, it was chiefly brought to the attention of the public in 1970, when Dr Thomas Stahl wrote an article in The Criminologist entitled Jack the Ripper, A Solution. Stahl claimed that a nobleman named S murdered the canonical five victims while driven mad through syphilis, which he had contracted in the West Indies. On the night of the double event, S was caught and imprisoned by his family, only for him to escape and slaughter Mary Jane Kelly in Miller's court. It was also said that Sir William Gull, the Queen's physician, had done all he could to certify the prince insane and end the horrors. The murderer eventually died of syphilis after being locked away in an institution for a number of years. Stahl didn't name Prince Eddie, as the prince was known, though he hinted to such a degree that it was obvious whom he meant. He told the crime writer Colin Wilson that S was Albert Victor years earlier, though he was later to deny it. The theory doesn't stand up at all. Firstly, Gould died before Albert Victor, so could not have been with him at the end. The prince died of pneumonia, and in any case, could not have died of syphilis, as that is a progressive disease, taking around 15 years before death occurs. This means that Albert Victor would have been infected at the age of nine, some six years before he even visited the West Indies. More? Well, it's an unusual mental institution which allows its inmates to serve in the British Army, toast the Queen in elaborate dinner parties, meet foreign ambassadors and carry out the general day-to-day activities of an heir to the throne in the full view of the press. He was also busy in London during the murders. It was with the publication of Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which caught the public's imagination. Knight had become interested in the BBC series Jack the Ripper, which aired in 1973, and featured the fictional detectives Barlow and Watt, played by Stratford Johns and Frank Windsor, from the police drama Z Cars. The two men go over the basic facts in their office, and there are cutaways to dramatic reconstructions of the inquest as well as, thrillingly for people like me who are interested in murder sites from a bygone age, footage of the men at the murder sites of Mitre Square and Books Row. The sixth episode of the show featured Joseph Gorman, a picture framer who claimed to be the illegitimate son of the painter Walter Sickett. He tells how his mother would urge him to avoid angering the authorities as his grandfather was given a difficult time by the very highest in the land. He goes on to explain that Walter Sickett had an affair with Alice Crook, the daughter of a former shop girl, Annie Crook. Annie married a toff to whom she bore a child, but it had to be kept quiet as Annie was a Catholic and that was a bad thing to be in his father's family, that father being Prince Albert Victor. Joseph Gorman, who changed his name to Sickert, told Knight that the prince's mother, Princess Alexandra, had introduced the heir presumptive to the painter so he could learn more about the arts, and that he met Annie at Sickert's studio in Cleveland Street. Albert Victor and Annie married, with one of the witnesses being Mary Jane Kelly, who was then working in a high-class West End brothel. Albert Victor settled wife and daughter into a flat on Cleveland Street, only for Queen Victoria to discover the truth. The Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, then ordered a raid on the apartment, as the affair, particularly to a Catholic, would be too much to bear. Annie was to be certified insane by Sir William Gull, and carted off to a mental institution. Gorman then went on to state that Mary Jane Kelly looked after the child, Alice, but saw a way of blackmailing the prince and his family. She concocted the scheme with her friends, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman and Liz Stride. The aristocracy then decided that the four women should die and tasked Sir William Gull to carry out the deadly deeds in his coach before dumping their bodies onto the streets. Catherine Eddowes was killed by accident as she occasionally used the name Mary Ann Kelly 
Though the women were killed, the child survived and would later become entangled in a relationship with Walter Sickert and would sire Joseph. Knight discovered a Masonic link in the tale, and was convinced that the severe slaughters of Chapman, Eddowes and Kelly resembled Masonic ritual murders, including such gruesome details as intestines being placed over shoulders. It may also be remembered that when Annie Chapman was found, some of her possessions lay out at her feet as if presented rather than scattered, as in a sacrificial rite. What convinced Knight further was the number of Freemasons in the story. Sir Charles Warren was a Mason, and let's not forget, he removed the Graffito and Goulson Street, which referred to the Jewes. Knight suggested that this was a collective term for Jubala, Jubello and Jubellum, three legendary figures in Freemasonry. In other words, the Freemasons are the men who will not be blamed for nothing and could act with impunity. Warren obviously realised the meaning and destroyed it. It's a fantastic tale, and, if true, will probably be the most shocking series of events in British history. Sadly, though, the plot is riddled with holes. Firstly, Sir William Gull suffered a stroke in 1887, and was unable to speak much afterwards. He was also 72 and partially paralysed at the time, so incapable of murders which required such strength. He was also not a Freemason, so it's unclear why the Masons would ask a non-member to carry out their bidding. It is also impossible that Albert Victor could have fathered Alice, as he was in Heidelberg in the weeks where she would have been conceived. And as one might expect, there was certainly no record of a wedding. In any case, any betrothal would have been invalid, as the Royal Marriage Act of 1772 precludes any marriage undertaken by royalty not ratified by the sovereign. As for the danger of having a Catholic placed in line for the throne, that too is impossible, as the Act of Settlement in 1871 excludes any Catholic from becoming an heir. Prince Eddie could have married Annie Crook at St Paul's Cathedral with the whole city watching, and it wouldn't have meant a thing. But all that pales into insignificance when this one fact is revealed. Neither Annie nor Alice were Catholics, nor did they ever convert. Records show that they were Church of England at both ends of their lives. As for the blackmail, there is no evidence at all to suggest that the victims knew each other. True, they lived close to each other, but so did thousands of other people in the overcrowded rookeries of Spitalfields. It would also be practically impossible for a coach to drive into, say, Mitre Square, and certainly down the passageway and into the yard of 29 Hanbury Street. Miller's Court would have been a test as well. I'll end this section by asking the question which continually crops up in my mind when considering the possibility of the most powerful people in the Empire murdering the lowest of the low to prevent a worldwide scandal. Just why would such people choose the most dramatic, public and horrific way to destroy their blackmailers? If they had the will and means to remove four conniving women from the streets, wouldn't they have done so quietly and efficiently? After all, the concept of black ops was not unusual even then. Had the police been part of the cover-up, and Sir Robert Anderson was implicated in this accusation, wouldn't they have caused less heartache by inventing an uncatchable serial killer? Again, I'll leave you to decide. I'll conclude this chapter with the extraordinary story of James Maybrick and the diary of Jack the Ripper. Maybrick was a successful cotton merchant from Liverpool, who divided his time between the UK and America. In 1871, he set up an office in Norfolk, Virginia, whereupon he contracted malaria. His treatment involved medication which contained minute traces of arsenic. Over time, Maybrick became addicted to the drug. In 1880, 
James Maybrick, then 42 years old, met and married Florence Chandler, a Southern Belle who was just 18. However, this was not to be a happy marriage, and Maybrick floated from affair to affair. He was also less than discreet about it, and when Florence got wind of them, she too wandered away from the marital bed. Maybrick died at his home in Egbeth, Liverpool in May 1889, six months after the final Ripper murder. The death was treated as suspicious, and when the inquest confirmed death by arsenical poisoning, Florence was suspected and arrested. Her trial at St George's Hall, Lime Street, Liverpool, was hardly a moral of judicial fairness, and though convicted and sentenced to death, her punishment was reduced to life imprisonment, possibly due to the manner in which the trial was conducted. Florence served 15 years before being released when the case was reinvestigated. She died in 1941. Maybrick's name and life had become synonymous with the Egbeth poisoning, as it was known. But in 1992, it was eclipsed by further intrigue. Michael Barrett, a scrap metal dealer from Liverpool, announced that he had the diary of Jack the Ripper. It's quite a statement. Initially, he claimed that he'd been given the book by his friend Tony Devereux in the Saddle Inn pub. But later, Barrett's wife Anne said that her family had been in possession of the diary for years, but didn't want to pass it to her husband directly, as relations between her father and Michael were strained to say the least. She thought it wise to pass it through Devereux in the hope that Michael would write a book about it. Michael was unemployed at the time and had literary pretensions, so she saw this as a chance to start a new career for him. The book was released in 1993, and though the author never states his name other than signing it Jack the Ripper, it is evidently Maybrick given reference to his life and children's names. Throughout the diary there were references to his wife's infidelities. She was always referred to as bitch or whore, and at times, flory. Several Ripperologists believed it to be true, given the content and apparent legitimacy of the diary and paper, but others approached it with caution. Numerous tests were carried out to see if the ink was of the period, but even that was inconclusive. One result stated that a dye called nigrosine was found, making it compatible with Victorian writings, but a second said that this was not of the period whatsoever. Other examinations were equally ambiguous, with one claiming that the ink could have been used as early as 1857, but wasn't commercially available until 1972. The whole thing was a mess from beginning to end. The mystery seemed over when in 1995, Michael Barrett swore in an affidavit that he was the author of the Maybrick's diary. The facts of this matter are outlined as follows. I, Michael Barrett, was the author of the original diary of Jack the Ripper, and my wife, Anne Barrett, hand-wrote it from my type notes, and on occasion at my dictation, the details of which I should explain in due course. The idea of the diary came from discussion between Tony Devereux, Anne Barrett, my wife, and myself. There came a time when I believed such a hoax was a distinct possibility. We looked closely at the background of James Maybrick, and I read everything to do with Jack the Ripper matter. I felt Maybrick was an ideal candidate for Jack the Ripper, most important of all, he could not defend himself. He was not Jack the Ripper, of that I am certain. But times, places, visits to London and all that fitted. It was too easy. Twenty days later, he issued a second statement in which he claimed that he and his family had been threatened but wanted to come clean and talk to Scotland Yard. However, Barrett's solicitor denied that any of Barrett's confessions were true and he himself went on to repudiate his own statement. All very confusing. 
To this day, some people believe the work to be that of the Whitechapel Fiend, and there are also some, notably Bruce Robinson, the producer of Withnail and I, who believe that it was not Maybrick, but his brother Michael, the composer of the hymn The Holy City, who was responsible for the Autumn of Terror. There's an intriguing postscript to the Maybrick affair. In June 1993, a pocket watch was discovered bearing several engravings, including J. Maybrick, I Am Jack, and, chillingly, the initials of the five Ripper victims. This too was sent for testing and came back with a more definite result than the diary. Dr. Robert Wilde of Bristol University found, Provided the watch has remained in a normal environment, it would seem likely that the engravings were at least several tens of years' age. In my opinion, it is unlikely that anyone would have sufficient expertise to implant aged brass particles into the base of the engravings. Of course, a man engraving a watch with macabre daubings does not necessarily make him a murderer, but it seems that Maybrick just a little more than a passing interest in who was Jack the Ripper. (laughs) 